Thanks so much, Fran. I really appreciate that, and uh, certainly appreciate the invitation. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I have so many friends and colleagues here, and I feel like coming back. <laughs> but no, I really enjoy, I, I'm very happy at Yale, but uh, just a wonderful, uh, CCMC is just a special place. I felt that when I was here. I certainly see this now. It still is. It's just really quite amazing. So it's a great honor to be here. And uh, again, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, so I'm, uh, I have spent about 25 years uh, studying human babesiosis. And uh, more recently, Brillia Miyamoto eye infection. I only study diseases that are difficult to pronounce. In, in any event, um, uh, so I uh, could talk, of course, uh, for either one of those for several hours. But uh, in speaking with Fran and actually Hank Fetter before giving this talk, they suggested I maybe broaden it a bit. Uh, so that's what I've done. And I'm talking about what's new in tick-borne diseases. So the outline of the talk is shown here. I'm going to uh, present an overview of tick-borne diseases, tick-borne diseases in Connecticut, review, uh, uh, sort of a mini-review of each of these diseases, and then what's new. Uh, and this will include Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, Powassan virus, Brillium miyamotoi, and, um, and then I'm going to talk about new ticks in Connecticut. And at about, I think we'll take a break about 11.30, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I do have an hour and a half, right? No, <laughs> so the new ticks in Connecticut are the Lone Star Tick and East Asian Longhorn Tick. We'll talk a little bit about that. So there are about 100 species of ticks found in the United States, even more worldwide. 20 tick species are of major public health or veterinary importance in this country. Five tick species can potentially transmit pathogens to humans in Connecticut. And I'm going to show you these five uh, different ticks. The first is Ixidae scapularis, also known as the black-legged uh, tick or the deer tick. And uh, you can see it, Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, Berlamia, Moroi infection, and Powassan infection. <clears throat> Dermocenter variabilis is the American dog tick or wood tick. It transmits Rocky Mountain spotted fever and tularemia, two diseases that are reportable in the state of Connecticut, but there have been very few of these, very few. So we're not going to be talking about that today. Erythencephalus uh, sanguinis is a brown dog tick. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is transmitted by that tick. Amblyoma americanum, the lone star tick, uh, we're talking about later in the, in the talk. Um, it transmits human monocytic ehrlichiosis, uh, but also heartland virus found in the Midwest, tularemia and starry. We'll be talking about a little bit about HME um, and uh, also the a meat allergy that occurs as a result of that lone star tick bite. And then finally, finally Ixodes cookii, which transmits uh, Powassan virus. This is a tick that, unlike scapularis, which roams the countryside and they stand up on little uh, pieces of grass and are waiting for a mammal to walk along where they can attach and take a blood meal, this, this tick uh, uh, basically is in little, little uh, hives, in a sense, and um, uh, they feed on skunks and raccoons, uh, muscolids, uh, and it's very, uh, because they're not wide-ranging, it's very unusual to get a bite from Ixodes cookii, but if you were to step in one of those nests, you get about 60 or 70 ticks on you, and I've seen a few people where that's happened. But uh, this is not a major uh, tick transmitting, uh, it's not a major disease transmitting tick be just because of that uh, habitat. So. We see Powassan virus really from Ixodes scapularis, which I'll be talking about. 
So this is a list of diseases transmitted by HCDs or hard body ticks. Lyme disease is clearly the most important, uh, with 30,000 cases reported each year. There are several studies to indicate that the actual number is more like ten, tenfold, so about 300,000. Mortality rate is less than 1%. Human granulocytic anaplasmosis, about 2,000 cases a year. I would say it's easily 10 times that uh, with a mortality rate of 2 to 3%. Babesiosis um, is uh, similar to uh, HGA in terms of its frequency. The mortality rate there is anywhere from 2 to 20 percent. If you have cancer, HIV, if you have no spleen, you're, or if you receive the infection through blood transfusion, the data tells, tells us that about 20 percent of those people will die. So it can be quite serious. Uh, but for most people and for children, most of the time it's, it's not a serious uh, condition and it's quite treatable. Tick-borne encephalitis is a really bad uh, infection to, to have. Um, it causes um, permanent neurologic damage in about half the cases and death in about 10% of the cases. Fortunately, the number of cases is quite small, but I'll be talking about Poisson a little further later in the lecture. And finally, Borrelia miyamotoi infection, which is relatively recently discovered. We don't really know how many cases are occurring nationally, but that's ongoing research that's being done to try to determine that, and we don't really know what the mortality rate is. Uh, and the final uh, agent transmitted by Ixodes ticks, uh, Ehrlichia Ehrlichius, I'm sorry, Ehrlichiosis murus, is uh, found in the Midwest. It is not a concern for us here in Connecticut. So this slide shows the distribution of Ixodes ticks worldwide, and I'm looking for the pointer, don't see it, no problem. Oh, no, not there, okay. So Ixodes specificus in the west, Ixodes scapularis, you'll see it, it extends down into the south. Interestingly, for reasons that are not completely understood, there's very little Lyme disease in the south, but certainly in the northeast and in the northern midwest, there's lots of Lyme disease. Uh, in Europe, Ixodes ricinus transmits Lyme disease and uh, Babesiosis and uh, HGA. Uh, in Asia, it's Ixodes persulcatus and uh, Ixodes obatus. So this is a world, these are worldwide diseases that occur in the temperate zones of the world. Um, another characteristic of these diseases, and as exemplified by Lyme disease, is that there's been an, a, um, an emergence of these diseases, that is, they spread geographically. And if you look at the map, you see Connecticut is in, this, this shows the Lyme disease uh, periods where counties were first designated as high incidence from 1993 to 2012. But actually the first cases of Lyme disease were described in 1975-76 by Alan Steer and colleagues in the, uh, in, in Old Lyme, Connecticut. And so at that time, you, the, it was even more circumscribed in terms of where it was occurring. So it's really spread out, both north, south, east, and west. And that same spread is occurring in Minnesota and Wisconsin. The reasons for this are probably many, but certainly one of the major reasons is the proliferation of deer. Because the, uh, tick, uh, the number of ticks is amplified uh, by, the, by the deer. The female tick takes a blood meal on that. On that uh, they preferentially, the adults, take a meal on, on deer. And so the female gets enough protein to lay her eggs. And so you get a tremendous, actually an explosion of the number of ticks when, when deer occur. And they have just spread because their, their natural enemies have disappeared and uh, hunting is decreasing and uh, it's, we all are experienced deer in our backyards. So the spread has been, as I say, from the, from the southeast, uh, sort of north and west. This has certainly occurred in Connecticut. 
If you look on the, this shows the uh, a similar pattern of spread with Lyme disease and babesiosis, but babesiosis has sort of trailed that of Lyme disease. So if you, this is um, uh, from 1991-2008, the endemic towns in Connecticut are shown in red and, uh, and, uh, in 1991. And in 1991, most of the state was endemic for Lyme disease, just the southeastern portion of the state of, uh, for babesiosis. And then as you know, the green shows, the uh, endemic areas at a later time, 2000, late 2000, mid to late 2000s. And so you can see all of Connecticut by that time was endemic for Lyme <clears throat> and much of it for babesiosis or babesiosis. So there's been this geographic spread. And different, in addition to that, we see an increase in the number of cases. And these are national reported cases from 1982 through 2012. And since 2012, it's continued to climb a little bit. Um, you can see that the uh, reported cases are shown in blue and then in brown and, and that olive green. And then the actual number of cases that people believe uh, occurs is about tenfold or 300,000. So we've seen an increase in Lyme. But we've essentially seen an increase in all these ICSIDES uh, transmitted uh, diseases. So let's look at uh, Lyme disease specifically, just as a sort of a, a brief summary. Causative pathogen in the United States is Borrelia burgdorferi. It's a spirochetobacteria. Target tissues are the skin, joint, neurologic, and cardiac tissue. Transmission is by ICSIDES hard body ticks. Clinical manifestations are skin rash, the, the pathognomonic uh, erythema migrans rash, and then there are cardiac joint and neurologic complications. Diagnosis is primarily clinical. That is, the diagnosis is almost always made by identification of the EM rash. So you normally do not need any laboratory tests. You just see an EM and you make the diagnosis. On the other hand, as, as I'll mention shortly, um, uh, if you do have a viral-like illness, which is the other presentation without EM, then you do need to, uh, usually you do antibody testing to make the diagnosis. Physical exam is, of course, very important because you see the EM rash. Lab tests are antibody and PCR. PCR is not very sensitive. Most of the testing is with antibody, which has its drawbacks, which uh, we can discuss. Treatment with, is with doxycycline, amoxicillin, cefuroxime, and ceftriaxone. This is a, an EM or erythema migrans rash. It's, a, it's defined as an expanding erythematous rash, generally flat, not itchy. Uh, but it expands to at least, has to get to at least five centimeters, that's two and a half inches in diameter. And uh, a tick bite would have occurred here in the center. The organism multiplies, causes erythema, and it continues to multiply, the rash spreads. And it, this rash is, uh, as you can see, it's more than, it's probably five, six inches in diameter. This picture was taken before the treatment of Lyme disease was, this is a very old slide, before the treatment was known, before treatment was known, and people would have this natural uh, sort of uh, course of EM that would get quite large, and then after a week or two it would resolve. If, you, if this patient were treated, the rash would, would disappear within a few days. And this is a child with disseminated EM. You can see multiple, uh, the, I think the original lesion was here but then developed uh, other lesions. And of course, it can disseminate to the heart, to the brain, to the joints uh, as well. So the diagnosis of Lyme disease, I, I mentioned erythema migrans in about 90% of cases, and, to con and that confirms the diagnosis. If you have the viral-like illness with, with fever, joint aches, muscle aches, that occurs in about 10% of cases. There, one generally needs to do an antibody test to help confirm the diagnosis. 
So the treatment of this disease, as uh, per IDSA guidelines in 2006, barothema migrans, doxycycline, amoxicillin, cefuroxime for 14 to 21 days. And I won't go through these other treatment courses, but they're a little more complex if you have arthritis, neurologic, or cardiac uh, involvement. So what's new with Lyme disease? Well, one of the new things is antibody testing. Antibody testing is uh, always a, pr a problematic because antibody usually takes about two weeks to form after any infection. Um, but actually, antibodies probably starts, to, at least in terms of measurable antibody. Uh, in terms of actual, but the biologic formation occurs after a few days. But very few tests are sensitive enough to pick that up. And so there, there's always this problem that you have a patient who comes to your office, does not have an EM rash, but it's summertime, they just got bitten by a tick, and um, they have muscle aches and pains, and they have uh, fatigue, and they have headache, and you think, well, this could be Lyme disease, so I'll get an antibody test. If it's within the first two weeks after a tick bite, it's very likely that will be negative, and it doesn't help you. So often, uh, physicians will treat empirically. Um, obviously, it would be good to have a more sensitive antibody test that would be positive early on. So there is a proposed change in terms of what we do. Um, right now, we use a whole cell ELISA of Lyme. You basically grow Lyme, grind it up, put it on an ELISA plate, and then test sera against that, uh, against that antigen, that whole cell antigen. And then uh, because there will be a number of false positives with this, you then do a Western blot to give you a better specificity and a final readout. Um, and um, the suggestion has been to switch from a from that approach to a whole cell ELISA and then a C6 ELISA. C6 is one of the proteins in the Lyme organism. It's on the outer coat, and it's um, another way in which one can, um, uh, well, antibodies directed against C6. So these two ELISA together have a certain advantage over what we currently do. And the advantages are that the two ELISAs are easier to perform, the Western blots are somewhat laborious, and the results, therefore, are variable Sooner. The cost of the two ELISA testing is less than that of ELISA and Western blot, and the interpretation of results of C6 ELISA less subjective than Western blot. But there's some disadvantages. Uh, there's some cross-reactivity between the C6 ELISA test and Borrelia miyamotoi. So if you had Borrelia miyamotoi, you might test positive on that Lyme C6 ELISA test, and someone would uh, think, okay, this person has Lyme disease, when in fact they actually have Borrelia miyamotoi. Another disadvantage, and this is just a paper that's just come out, is that two, two ELISAs are not completely independent tests. Uh, and therefore, the C6 ELISA cannot be used as a conformatory test. So I'd say about a year or two after this was floated, this idea of let's do two ELISAs, now all of a sudden it's not so clear whether one can really do this. And one may have to develop an ELISA with a different antigen rather than C6. So um, there may still, there's still a role for this. You increase uh, sensitivity with the two ELISAs. There, there may, that may uh, be used, but probably not. Um, uh, there is active research, though, looking at more sensitive and, and rapid antibody tests. So this is a slide from L Squared. Uh, it's a, a diagnostic company in New Haven. And uh, in, this, in this study, they, they, have they have used a new multi-antigen line test using uh, beads, multiplex beads, uh, which, where they place the Lyme, these various Lyme proteins on the beads. You then incubate a person's sera with those beads, and then you have a readout because you put in another antibody that has fluorescence on it. And that test turns out to be very sensitive. 
And it, the advantage is that you get early Lyme disease, it will be positive very early in the course of Lyme disease, and that's what this graph shows. So on the uh, y-axis, you have the Lyme disease score. Uh, anything above the line is positive, anything below the line is negative by this L-squared test. But this test also, this graph also shows you what the two-tier assay uh, gives. Negative is red, uh, positive is blue. So that's the, the two-tier is the standard assay. Uh, so here, if you just look at this column, you see the standard test. I'm sorry. You use, you use the mouse. I'll use the mouse. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm sorry about that. So, um, so if you look at this, this is early Lyme disease. Uh, there are other mani Lyme manifestations, but the advantage of this test really has to do with early EM, and, or the early, early Lyme disease. And you can see here, these dots show you the standard, the current standard two-tier test. And um, these were all, by the way, these are sera from the CDC. These are all positive early Lyme disease sera. Uh, from patients who had Lyme disease within, um, and, and the sera was collected within two weeks. So if you look at this, you see that uh, there's a lot of red dots. That means the standard assay is calling all those negative, when in fact they're positive. They do have a few positive uh, results, but most of them are negative. Whereas if you look at the number of dots above the line, which are positive for the L squared, the majority of them are above the line, meaning uh, is the bottom line is that this L, this L squared test is more sensitive, and I think this will probably um, be uh, be used uh, in the near in the not too distant future. Another thing that's new with Lyme disease is treatment. In 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics endorsed short-term, that is less than 21 days, use of doxycycline for Lyme disease in children younger than eight years. And this is new because, as you all know, there's concern about doxycycline staining a child's, staining their, te their teeth. Um, the recommendation of this was based on, low, on the low risk of dental staining in reports of doxycycline for a relatively small number of children, less than eight, who had rocky fever. They didn't, the, uh, the researchers did not see any teeth staining in this group, and therefore um, they, they uh, felt that doxycycline is, is safe to use at least less than 21 days. So it, it, that, that opens up another potential treatment um, option for you uh, for Lyme disease. Uh, it's, however, still best to use amoxicillin or cefuroxime in these patients, uh, that is children less than eight because the antibiotics are just as good for treatment of EM. The one exception is if you have central nervous system disease, because it turns out doxycycline gets into the CSF well, and at least in Europe, and to some extent here, uh, meningi uh, Lyme meningitis is being treated with oral doxycycline. So you would have less of a chance of spread and, and that disease worsening if you use doxy. Um, so in any event, uh, doxycycline is an option uh, for Lyme disease. The other, the other new topic is vac a vaccine. And the original vaccine was uh, made from OSPE, outer surface protein A, which is um, a, um, uh, an outer, it's a part of the outer coat of the Lyme organism, um, and uh, antibody will be directed against that OSPE. And uh, this, this vaccine was called Limerix. It was 80% effective. It was an effective vaccine. It took three, three vaccinations, however, and it probably was going to take um, uh, several uh, booster shots. Nonetheless, it was a very good initial prototype vaccine that initially had, uh, was well received. However, uh, it was removed from the market after several years for economic reasons. 
There was the mistaken, there was a class action suit by a group of people who thought they had developed arthritis from the vaccine. And the data ultimately showed that that was not the case, that the, they had a placebo, talking about 20,000 20, people in this trial, and 10,000 had placebo, 10,000 had vaccine. The arthritis rate in those two groups was essentially the same. So this was a class action suit that was not really valid, uh, but uh, scientifically valid, but nonetheless, it had the effect that really dampened the enthusiasm for the vaccine, and it was no longer economically viable for the uh, for SmithKline Beecham, and they just uh, stopped the vaccine, which is really unfortunate because they could have developed better vaccine. Well, a European company, Valneva, has developed a new uh, multivalent OSPE uh, that's effective against different species of B. burgdorferi in Europe and the United States. It turns out that there are different species in Europe, and the OSPE vaccine would only work against the American strain. This new vaccine works against strains both in the United States and in Europe. And that is now uh, the phase one trials for this vaccine have been completed, meaning it's basically found to be safe. Uh, at least in the phase one trial, they were very successful. They're now, this year, they'll start a phase two trial where they have a larger number of patients, again, looking for both uh, toxicity and efficacy. And it's estimated that this vaccine will get onto the market perhaps in five years. So don't hold your breath, but uh, a, va a Lyme vaccine would be really, uh, really good uh, to, to have. Uh, have in our hip pocket. Anaplasmosis, cause of agent is anaplasma phagocytophilum, which is a rickettsia target tissue or white blood cells. This infects neutrophils, polymorphonuclear leukocytes. Transmission is threefold. Uh, Ixodes ticks, but you can get this through blood transfusion. Not terribly common, but that does occur. And a pregnant woman who has anaplasmosis can transmit that to her child. This is a really rare event, but it does occur. Clinical manifestations are a viral-like illness. You can't distinguish it really clinically from that of Lyme disease or babesiosis. Complications are respiratory and renal failure, superinfection. Superinfection because the white cells are destroyed and therefore or the neutrophils are, and that leads you open to other infections. And folks who get superinfection usually are quite ill. The death rate is about 1% to 3%. Um, diagnosis is medical history, physical exam. And lab tests, <laughs> usually you need to do lab tests. On a, on a blood smear, you can see this organism in the white, cell, in white cells. I'll show you that picture shortly. You can do PCR and antibody testing. Treatment with doxycycline and rifampin. Doxycycline is incredibly effective. Um, uh, Johan Bakken is a friend of mine who is the one who actually first discovered this disease, would tell me about people in the ICU with very severe anaplasmosis, and after two or three doses, they just walk out and go home. Um, so it's, it's highly effective. So this is a cartoon of a neutrophil. You can see that, uh, that uh, morula there. I'm going to... Uh, so uh, essentially what happens is a neutrophils engulf bacteria or fungi, and they, they, it's placed in what's called a phagolysosome, where you have toxic oxygen species and proteolytic enzymes that break down that organism. But uh, anaplasma not only survive that, they actually thrive in the white cell. They multiply, and then they infect other white cells. And this show, this, these slides show um, the morula in real-life situations. I'm going to just point this out. And uh, actually here and here. 
So uh, you, about 20, 30% of the time, you'll be able to see these on smear. So if you have a patient you think may have an anaplasmosis, order a blood smear and look in the white cells. If it's negative, it doesn't mean it's not anaplasma, and you'll have to do PCR testing. The treatment for this, as I mentioned, is doxycycline. And what's new is now that doxycycline can be used in children under 8, you could use that for anaplasmosis. And here it would be, uh, although you could use rifampin, doxy is probably the way to go. Babesiosis, causative pathogen, protozoal parasite, and the phylum may be complexa, target tissue or red blood cells. Transmission is hard body ticks, Ixes scapularis in the west, it's Ixes pacificus. It is, turns out to be the number one pathogen transmitted through the blood supply in the United States, and that's been true for a number of years. So if there, were, if there weren't screening for hepatitis, those viruses, hepatitis uh, B, you would get, that would certainly be outranked Babesia, but there's screening for that, and the screening for Babesia has not been fully developed yet. So um, it, you do have, a, it's a very low risk, but there is a risk of getting this disease through blood transfusion. You can also get it perinatally if an infected uh, pregnant woman develops this, her newborn infant might develop it. It's a rare event. Again, it's a viral-like illness, and the complications are respiratory and renal failure, DIC, congestive heart failure, and death, as I mentioned, in 3 to 20 percent of individuals. The diagnosis based on medical history, if you have typical symptoms, physical exam doesn't help much. Some people have enlarged spleen or liver. Lab tests are what you really generally have to do. You, look, you do a smear to look for organisms in the red cells. You do a PCR, and antibody is sometimes helpful. Treatment is with atovaquone and azithromycin or clindamycin. And this is a slide showing uh, red cells. You can see those little dark circles that are found in about 10 percent of this person's uh, blood smear. This person would be quite ill, 10 percent paracetamia is uh, bad news. Um, and, um, but you can see these in red cells. They're sometimes confused with malaria. But if the person has not visited a malarious area and, they, and, they're, uh, and you see these organisms, you can say, you know, that's Babesia. So what's new with Babesia? Um, the 2006 IDSA guidelines said for mild to moderate disease, you use atovaquone and azithromycin. For severe disease, clindamycin and quinine. Uh, and exchange transfusion in very sick individuals. The new guidelines, based on a, a review study that was really quite, uh, quite a good study, several hundred patients treated with uh, severe Babesia with atovaquone and azithro did very well. And so now that the use of that is expanded because quinine is very toxic. Um, so there's been a report uh, that we did about people with uh, B-cell lymphoma and rituximab who don't make antibody against Babesia. These people or people who have HIV. These folks uh, have very prolonged, they can't clear the infection because they don't have antibody. And so here the treatment is to go, excuse me, to go longer, at least six weeks. That's uh, something that's new. And then the discovery that there is resistance to, in some Babesia to tovaquone azithromycin, not very common, but that is a concern. Okay, Powassan virus. Causative pathogen is Powassan virus, target tissue or neuronal cells. There are two types, two genetic types that are pretty closely related, but one's um, lineage one, which is transmitted by Ixodes cookii. Remember that tick that it's very uncommon that it would bite a human. But then Ixodes scapularis, the same tick that transmits Lyme disease in anaplasma and Babesia, lineage 2. Clunker manifestations are a viral-like illness, but encephalitis. These kids get encephalitis. 
Complications are neurologic sequelae in, in about half the individuals and death anywhere three to 20 percent. Diagnosis is, you know, a patient has encephalitis, meningoencephalitis, and with all the findings you'd expect with that uh, decreased level of consciousness, sometimes stiff neck. And so you want to do a lab test, and generally it would be an antibody test. The treatment is supportive. There's no specific therapy for this. So what's new? The disease is increasing in geographic range and incidence. The first case was reported right here at CCMC. Dr. Nicholas Bennett made the diagnosis. All right. And, uh, uh, and that was the first case ever described in Connecticut, and I think that was really uh, astute to, uh, to think of that, because Powassan is not in everyone's list of uh, what about right away. So he made the diagnosis. That was the first case in Connecticut. It tells us that it is here in this state. It's a really nasty uh, infection, and I've said to people that if Wasson starts to really increase, the deer will be history. Um, but um, that's another topic, uh, getting rid of the deer. I could talk an hour about that. Uh, cases are increasingly in older people. Uh, and uh, surveillance was very good for Powassan, or much better than it is now, when West Nile uh, outbreak occurred. If you remember, that started in New York City. Animals in a zoo in, in New York became ill, and then people became ill, and crows were dying, and it was, it was scary, and, and a number of people got West Nile. And uh, for a few years, there was a great um, awareness of encephalitis and the causes, and uh, Powassan, uh, benefit, uh, the diagnosis benefited from that because people would do some Powassan diagnosis as well as West Nile. But that now, West Nile is still here, but it's not as common, and uh, surveillance really is not so terrific for Powassan. We really need better surveillance for this disease. Okay, I'm going to spend a little time on Brillium miyamotoi, which is a relatively new infection you're probably not aware of, uh, recently discovered tick-borne disease. And the causative pathogen is Brillia motoi spirochete. This is a cousin of uh, Lyme disease spirochete. They're similar, but not the same. Um, the target tissue here is blood. Uh, Lyme disease affects the skin. It affects fixed tissue, the skin, the joints, the neurologic system, the cardiac system. Whereas this organism is a relapsing fever uh, Borrelia, and it gets into the blood, and that's where it hangs out. The transmission is by ixodes ticks. Uh, also, probably blood transfusion. We did a study in mice where we took mice and infected them with um, uh, Brillium miyamotoi. We then took the blood of, that, of those mice, put them into um, a, uh, a very similar condition that you would store human blood, stored it for a week, injected other mice, they got the disease. So it, it probably, you get very high titers in the blood. So this is probably going to be, uh, it's probably going to be a problem in the blood supply. Uh, whether, there's never been a case reported, so it may not happen, but it probably will. Clinical manifestations are a viral-like illness, like all these, apparently, uh, and uh, complications are relapsing fever and encephalitis. The diagnosis is a medical history, physical exam, lab test, smear, and antibody. Treatment is amoxicillin, cefuroxime, ceftriaxone, or doxy, the same as for Lyme disease. So uh, I just want to talk a little bit about milestones in discovery. In 1995, a new, new relapsing fever Borrelia was found in hard-body ticks in Japan, named in honor of Kenji Miyamoto, who is a famous entomologist. 2001, Miyamoto I was found in ICSI scapularis ticks in the United States by Derlin Fish um, at Yale. In 2011, the first human cases, uh, cases of Miyamoto were discovered in Russia. 
In 2013, Miyamoto I genome was sequenced. It was confirmed as a relapsing fever Borrelia. The first case of Miyamoto I reported in the United States were two groups, uh, Gugliata and our group, simultaneously in the same issue of New England Journal. The first human case was reported in Europe and the Netherlands. Uh, the first human case in Asia and Japan in 2014. This is Dr. Miyamoto right here. It's Darwin Fish next to him at a, at a PIC meeting somewhere in the world. I'm not sure where this was. but. Um, and this shows the spirochete. You can see it uh, looks like the Lyme spirochete. It's a little more tightly coiled, but it basically looks, that, uh, looks like that. And you can, because this is in the blood, you would not do this for Lyme disease. You wouldn't do a blood smear. But for Miyamoto eye, you would, because you can see these organisms often, not always, but often in the blood of infected people. So this is a busy slide. Uh, let me just sort of talk you through it. Um, it's really, uh, it's, it's comparing. Borrelia miyamotoi in those original Russian patients in that far left column uh, with um, Borrelia miyamotoi in, in the United States the, in a case series that was done more recently. In the original miyamotoi study, uh, they, the authors compared miyamotoi in Russia with gorinii in Russia, which is a Lyme organism in Russia, and with a case, a number of, um, with um, series of uh, Borrelia uh, burgdorferi cases that we did. We were part of that study, with the, but there was the Russians were obviously the main authors, but we were invited to be part of it. So anyway, it just compares the various symptoms in these groups. So look at fever, top line. Miyamoto I, 98%, that's a relapsing fever. Gorinia I, 67%, that's a Lyme uh, agent, uh, a Lyme disease agent, as is burgdorferi, only about a third of the patients had fever. Whereas if you look at Miyamoto eye in the United States, it's again, almost everyone has it. And Hermsii, which is a soft tick trans, uh, relapsing fever organism transmitted by soft ticks that's found in the Western United States, all of them had fever. Relapsing fever was seen in 10, none of the uh, Lyme cases, 10% of the Russian cases, 4% of the American cases, and 79% of the Hermsii cases. So why did we not see more, why is not more relapsing fever seen? Probably because in the patients, Miyamoto I, and the USA patients, they were treated relatively early on with antibiotic, whereas the uh, Hermsii patients, usually diagnosis delayed in those patients, which we don't have time to go into now. But basically, I think we would see more elapsing fever if treatment were had not, empiric therapy hadn't been given earlier. The other, the other two issue, uh, items to look at is the erythema migrans and Miyamoto I, 9% had EM rash in Russia, but we weren't sure if those might have been co-infected individuals. So um, it's still not clear whether Miyamoto I can cause uh, uh, EM rash. In the U.S. cases, there was rash, but it wasn't mentioned whether it was EM or not. The mean number of symptoms is similar between the relapsing, between Miyamoto I and um, Lyme disease. This shows a um, graph of two of the Russian patients. If you look at the top, you see the tick bite occurred on day zero. Fatigue, headache, and myalgia occurred about day 10. The patient developed fever, was hospitalized. In Russia, you hospitalize people who've had, had fever and tick bite because they're concerned about tick-borne encephalitis, which can be quite severe. So uh, the patient then had a positive PCR result for Miyamoto eye, uh, but by that time, the fever had gone away, so they weren't treated. And about two weeks later, another, uh, another fever occurred uh, the IgM was positive, the patient was started on antibiotic and cleared very well. 
The second one on the lower frame shows this patient had three, three bouts of relapsing fever. Uh, there's not been more than three bouts of relapse that's been seen. With a soft tick relapsing fever, there have been cases of relapse 10 times over the course of a year. Okay, there have been three meningoencephalitis cases from Borrelia miyamotoi. The first was in the United States, an 80-year-old female with Hodgkin's disease. She was given ceftriaxone, then given penicillin G for four weeks. She had full recovery. Another one in the Netherlands, 70-year-old male with diffuse B-cell lymphoma, uh, full recovery, and then finally uh, with treatment. And in Germany, 74-year-old female with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, had full recovery with ceftriaxone. So I, it doesn't appear this is going to be a problem in children. It's going to be more a viral-like illness that you will see. But again, this disease has just recently been described, and I think the complications that we will see in, in children is not entirely clear. I did want to present one case of a five-year-old child. Um, this is this five-year-old lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. Was bitten by uh, a tick on her scalp. Tick was a was taken to a UMass uh, evaluation center. They evaluate ticks, identified as Ixie scapularis, and found to be infected with Miyamotoi. She was feeling fine. Two weeks later, she developed a fever, 204. She was seen by her pediatrician on the third day of illness. The exam was normal except for a small red papule on the scalp. Uh, the lab data showed a low white count, 2,600, which is typical for Miyamotoi, a low platelet count, also typical for Miyamotoi. Excuse me, blood smear was negative. PCR uh, was negative for, for Miyamotoi, microti, and phagocytophilum, and no antibody to Miyamotoi was seen, so the patient was given ibuprofen, and uh, that the, the fever resolved in about five, four or five days. But then 12 days after the initial symptoms, she developed rhinorrhea and cough, progressively worsened. She had a temp of 100.2. Um, she had wheezes. An x-ray showed a left lower lobe pneumonia. And she was given azithromycin for five days and albuterol nebulizers as needed. And she, she was well. She, that, that cleared her infection. And she was found to have an IgM and IgG antibody that was positive for Miyamotoi in convalescence, so she she seroconverted from negative to positive, telling us that this was Miyamotoi. Obviously, she had the tick that was positive. So here's an individual who had actually relapsing fever and had pneumonia. Whether pneumonia has not been described for adults, it's not clear whether that was as actually the, the x-ray was not terribly severe. It could have just been asthma, but not entirely clear. But this was the first pediatric case that's been described. She's been afebrile and well for a year after the illness. Diagnosis with CBC, you see leukopenia and thrombocytopenia. Liver enzymes are often elevated. You can do a microscopic exam of blood or CSF and see the organism. You can do PCR. You can do antibody. You can do in vitro culture, and you can inoculate skid mice. The last two would not be something you'd see in a standard lab, only in research labs. Treatment is the same as for Lyme disease. Choice of antibiotics and duration of therapy, again, same as for Lyme. Okay. So now we come to the tick part of the talk and, and uh, tick talk. So uh, what's new uh, in ticks in Connecticut? The Lone Star Tick. This is uh, a tick that transmits human granulocytic ehrlichiosis and causes meat allergy. If you've been bitten by this tick, you may never be able to eat red meat again, and we'll talk about that uh, in shortly. The other tick that's appeared now in Connecticut is the East Asian Longhorn Tick. Quite ugly, you'll see that tick later. So here's the Lone Star tick, uh, and most of it occurs in the, in the south, 
south, southern United States, but it's been creeping north and in fact is found in the north, excuse me, in the north. And the Lone Star tick is a very aggressive biting tick. Uh, and you can see the, the ventral side has this uh, sort of yellow, what's considered a star. And um, so these ticks are identified by that, that um, yellow uh, circle on, on their uh, ventral side. And um, uh, this tick has been found in Connecticut. It's endemic actually on, in uh, Mar uh, sorry, Manresa Island in Connecticut. Not, I'm saying that correctly, I think. And then Prudence Island. But it's been found largely in Fairfield County. But if you look at the map at the right, it's actually, there's been a fair number of these ticks found in Fairfield County. But actually, it's been found in our area as well, or, you know, in, um, in, in, in Hartford, uh, for Hartford area as well. So these ticks are out there. Uh, there's a, um, an I don't know if this is true, but there's a story that on Long Island, a lot of uh, Ixie scapularis have been displaced by this tick. And uh, so it remains to be seen whether this will displace Ixie scapularis, but it's out there and it can cause human, it can transmit human monocytic ehrlichiosis, which is like anaplasma essentially. And you treat it with doxycycline just as you would uh, anaplasma. But it also has this interesting, uh, uh, it, it also interestingly can lead to red meat allergy. And we'll talk about that briefly. So uh, here's the story. Dr. Scott Cummins and colleagues at the University of North Carolina noted the following. Some patients receiving uh, cetuximab, which is a monoclonal antibody used to treat cancer, were experiencing urticaria and anaphylaxis reactions. And this was more common in, so in uh, patients from the southeast than the northeast. Some of the patients were developing urticaria, anaphylaxis, and GIF sets two to six hours after eating red meat, including beef, pork, and lamb, primarily in people in the southeast. The reaction to meat was occurring in people within a few weeks or months of a lone star tick bite, which was found, again, found primarily in the southeast. Uh, so they investigated the cause for these reactions. And they found that IgE antibodies specific for the mammalian oligosaccharide galactose alpha-1,3 galactose, also known as alpha-gal, was common in people over a large area of the southeastern United States. They just made that observation. And they found these IgE antibodies are caused almost exclusively by bites of larval or adult lone star ticks. The lone star tick saliva and uh, this uh, monoclonal antibody, cetuximab, both contain alpha-gal. So what happens is you can see this showing where the lone star tick occurs. Uh, and there's a lone star tick that feeds on a deer. You get a tick bite. That's not really an EM rash sort of reaction to the bite. And then one to three months later, you develop IgE. And not everyone. In fact, very few people develop this. But there are people who develop IgE antibody to this, uh, to this oligosaccharide, uh, alpha-gal. And then if you eat any meat from any of these animals, two to six hours later, you get urticaria, angioedema, and anaphylaxis. Quite discouraging. And I, I, <laughs> I will excuse the language, but um, I actually met Dr. Cummins at a, at a symposium, and uh, a couple of his colleagues developed this. And the, 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 this is how they termed, uh, termed the uh, inability to eat meat. It sucks. That's what they said. <laughs> not very scientific, but um, uh, it's, not, it's a very unpleasant thing, obviously. And probably you can never have meat for the rest of your life. So I wanted to just go into a little mechanism here really quickly. Um, uh, if you have a worm, an intestinal worm, um, you're going to make IgE antibody. And that's very good. That's very good if you have a worm. So you have 
In the GI tract, you, you develop a long worm infection. An antigen-presenting cell like a dendritic cell will present worm antigen to a CD4 T cell, a helper T cell. That T cell will become a Th2 cell. That cell will make IL-4 uh, cytokine that causes B cells to produce IgE antibody. That IgE antibody will then attach to mast cells. They're found throughout your body. They're found in the GI tract, included in the GI tract. Um, they will also bind to um, uh, eosinophils, as you see over, over there on the right. And then if uh, worm antigen then is, uh, occurs and binds to that Ig antibody, it causes the mast cell and the eosinophil to degranulate. And those granules are toxic. And they will cause death of the uh, helminth, which is very good. But they have a lot of other physiologic effects, especially the uh, mast cell. It will cause muscle constriction, among other things. And that's good if you have worms because that's going to cause contraction in your GI tract and get rid of them. On the other hand, uh, it's not good if you, uh, if these mast cells occur in your, well, if mast cells, if you have asthma, these mast cells occur all over the body, they occur in the lung, and in this case, pollen would then attach to that IgE, causing mast cell degranulation and causing all the symptoms of asthma. So what's happening here is you're getting IgE antibody from a tick bite, from a lone star tick bite. You're developing IgE to red meat, uh, to the uh, alpha-gal in red meat, and you get release then of these, any, of these uh, granules from mast cells and eosinophils every time you eat meat, and you're getting diarrhea, and you're getting urticaria, and you're getting anaphylaxis, not good. Last slide, East Asian longhorn tick. This is a, this, these pictures are of engorged ticks after they take a blood meal. They span quite a bit. This is true for all ticks. This just happens to be a picture of one that's engorged. This tick has been found um, uh, in Connecticut. One tick, one longhorn tick has been found, but that means there are others. And uh, <laughs> they're out there. Uh, but I don't want to cause panic because, first of all, there's no disease transmitted by these ticks as far as we know. Uh, and maybe it'll just stay in Fairfield. Uh, but <laughs> probably not. Probably not. And. Uh, the reason I bring this up is you see news stories and then people panic, you know, and they think, uh, you know, this is it, this is the end. Uh, and uh, so that isn't the case, but uh, at least when your patients ask about this, you can tell them to relax at least at this point in time. <clears throat> we'll see what happens. This is Block Island where I've done research for 25 years, beautiful island, full of ticks, and uh, uh, it's, really, it's really just the perfect place. And, <laughs> Do research and then go swimming. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs>